0: On November 11, 1918, the armistice that marked the end of the First World War was declared. In honor of this week's 100-year anniversary of the outbreak of that peace, we have temporarily suspended our otherwise sacrosanct policy of randomly selecting our next film in order to feature this anti-war cinema classic. It's never a bad time in my estimation to reflect on the world-shaping tragedy of World War I. Although it might seem like a conflict from long ago, There were plenty of lessons learned there that it would be a shame to have to learn again the hard way. We spend a lot of time speculating whether the holocaust could ever happen again, but could prideful conflicts between nation states explode into a global war of attrition where an entire generation feeds itself into a meat grinder? Well, how fertile is your imagination? I have to admit I worked for a while on this intro and tried to put in some usual sass, but it fell flat world war one has always felt very personal to me my grandfather and my grandmother met in france during the war he was an infantry officer and she was there to sing and entertain the troops she wrote a book about her experiences called nightingale in the trenches but no one's ever read it because it is just a journal gossiping its entire length about who the handsome officers were and how general pershing couldn't dance the foxtrot but she sang for the troops up at the front and was awarded a french order of merit my grandfather fought there And many years afterwards, he wrote about the war on his portable typewriter, poems, and stories. First in the VA hospital in LA, and then slowly withering away in a succession of flea-bitten SRO hotels. This was in the 1950s. I still have his onion skin pages, my father couldn't read them. And although he tried to stay hardy and manly, my grandfather's tone is unmistakably that of someone irrevocably broken. My great-uncle was there, too. And he spoke to me in war French as a child and he taught me to sing Over There and How You Gonna Keep him Down on the Farm. To him, the war was best remembered as a jest. Even now, in 2018, my 92-year-old Uncle Jack is still trying to reconcile his father's experience there. He talks to me about the old stories and how my grandfather bayoneted a German and looked in his eyes as though replaying that story now will help him understand better his father who died 60 years ago. My uncle whom I love, still transmitting his father's injury and his own bruise from it 100 years after the fact. <sighs> so this war did far more damage to my family than the second war. And all of this I feel acutely, and have felt my whole life, even though both of my grandparents were dead long before I could ask them about it. I remember World War I vets, their old, mothy clothes and their tarnished medals. I watched them grow old, very old, and heard their songs and in a few cases attended their funerals. I never heard any of them tell a single war story beyond recounting the singing and dancing and endless wine i know that my people all fought at Belleau wood and on the marne and they were there for that last wave of insanity producing explosions and the hail of bullets and the mud and the rats but they were young and mostly unconscious of the fact that the patrimony of europe was being dismembered and thrown like a raw chicken to a dozen rat terriers even my own shell-shocked grandfather couldn't see the war itself as anything less than heroic he never connected his own shattered life to having stood amidst the Bella Poke and the pax britannica and the gilded age all being ground to hamburger and flung into a latrine but as the old saying goes repeatedly going over the top and expecting a different result it's the definition of insanity The takeaway for that generation that fought in those trenches even as they croaked their patriotic songs was that war was the enemy good god y'all and that was true for veterans on all sides of the conflict although the allies were ostensibly the victors the inescapable conclusion was that the war was utterly pointless and it squandered millions of lives with no result other than the impoverishment and spiritual devastation of all involved and that was the thesis of the best-selling novel all quiet on the western front written in German, which spawned this movie of the same name. In it, we follow a group of bright-eyed German students who all speak in perfect clipped mid-Atlantic accents, who are whipped into a frenzy by a vaingloriously patriotic school teacher who riles them up with nationalistic Latin mottos, because you know how kids are. They all volunteer and go to war and are one by one destroyed. Paul, our main character, takes a long time to emerge as the focus of the film as the camera seems just as interested in his compatriots, but as the war chews them up we're left with Paul. His friendship with the older, more experienced Stanislaw is our anchor as he learns to fight and survive. In one of the darkest moments of the film, Paul gets trapped in a crater in No Man's Land where he stabs a French soldier and then spends hours watching the man slowly die from his wounds, alternately caring for him humanely and wishing him dead. By the end of the movie, Paul is emotionally eviscerated by the fighting. The battlefield is the only place he truly feels at ease. A brief furlough to his hometown discourages us all. The last shred of his youth turns to ash as the myopic and war-boosting townspeople glad-hand him about the war. The final scene, just to really drive home the point that war is wretched and destroys everything, including the good in all of us, is Paul reaching over the lip of his trench to touch a butterfly, only to have a French sniper's bullet blow his head off. The end. This movie is a fascinating historical artifact. It's a war film made during a period where most people thought such a war could never come again. Even then, the seeds of the next war were taking root in Europe and Asia. It goes to show that, like an alcoholic after an awful bender, we may swear off war forever in the immediate aftermath, but in this case, less than 20 years later, we picked up the bottle again. This movie is a buried treasure in a different way too, made before the Hays Code sanitized the way Hollywood depicted violence and despair. It was shot both as a talkie and as a silent film, and it's the first talkie to win Oscars, the dawn of a new era. For myself, the first war affects me as deeply as any war can, and I still feel the loss reverberating through the contemporary world and imagine what might have been. So let's take a look back a 100 years at World War I that we maybe even today can derive some worthwhile admonition from the pointless farce of it all. Never such innocence, never before or since, has changed itself to past without a word. The men leaving the gardens tidy, the thousands of marriages lasting a little while longer. Never such innocence again. Death is not an adventure for those who stand face to face with it. Today on Friendly Fire. All quiet on the Western Front.
1: Welcome to Friendly Fire. It would be a pleasure to go to the front in a war movie podcast like this. I'm Ben Harrison. Why, I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. <laughs> Why, yeah, <yada>. See? Yeah. <laughs> it's the perennial question. Did people actually talk like that, or is it a, a patois for movies?
2: I wish one of the things the Hays Code... Uh, eliminated was talking like this
1: (laughs) (laughs) well this is pre haze code
2: that's what i'm saying like like among the many changes that happened right around this time after this film was made like i wish they they made that against the law
0: the the best part for me was one of the one of the nuns in the hospital <laughs> spoke with the most mid Atlantic Catherine Hepburn <laughs> accent I had ever heard, and it was so she's a nun you know in a French hospital.
2: Charlie, we're gonna amputate your leg. <laughs> it was so great, but now my like Catherine Hepburn sounds a lot like Christopher Walken. It does sound like Christopher Walken. <laughs> We should stipulate though. shove your
0: leg in your ass.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> we should stipulate that this film was the first move the first talkie to win an Oscar. So, prior to this, there had never been uh, all Oscar winners were silent films. Yeah. So we really are on a we're on a cusp here where None of these, a lot of these actors in this movie were famous silent film actors, and this is the first time moviegoers ever heard their voices.
2: Yeah, like the film that won an Academy Award the year before this was Train Drives at Screen.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, when they showed the clip at the Oscars, it cleared the room. (laughs) (laughs) The year before that, it was Horse Runs.
0: This is Train's
2: first award and first nomination. (laughs) (laughs)
0: but so the, the fact that every single actor in the film is speaking with that same clipped nasal tone is just, uh, that absolutely had to be like culture wide, what you expected, at least from an actor, maybe everybody on the street didn't talk that way, but that was, that communicated to people that acting was happening. Was
2: there an awkward moment in Hollywood where there was a transition between this type of elocution and what we would, what we would call like
0: normal talking? I mean, if you think about Gone with the Wind, yeah, that they're talking that way, more or less. Like, when did it change? There had to have been the first naturalistic film. I it think, must have blown people's I think people Brando flying. and
1: Streetcar was like the first time people That's had why. seen it. In a uh, in a wide release, that's asked why. and answered.
0: Yeah, Bra- nice that's what. That's why it 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 shocked the world because Brando was a natural man. Yeah. Whoa. well. So we're at the dawn of that here. We're we're at the very dawn of that strange way, and also it stands out because this is a film where the where everyone is German or French, and yet they all sound. Like they're from Long Island. (laughs) Hey, I'm trying to fight in this
1: trench here. (laughs) Hey, bring me some uh, some Hennessy and cheese. What's the matter, you? (laughs) Before we get into uh, the the film too much, I wanted to say, like, this might be an episode where a lot of new people come on board to the show. Yes. Uh, So uh, I just wanted to say welcome yeah, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of previous episodes that we would encourage you to take a listen to. Uh, it's but, too you bad know. we
2: lost half of that new audience
0: during that weird Brooklyn <laughs> accent phase we just yeah. went through. Uh, but it, but but it, it is it, it's true that, uh, and in particular, since we're doing this episode to commemorate the hundredth anniversary of the uh, the armistice of World War One, there is a certain amount of reverence that we intend it's just not our way right <laughs> we're very reverent about the war and about this film but we also are children and uh we cannot stop being mocking
1: think of reverence as the as the apex of a mountain and this podcast is the slippery slope that can constantly slides away from it
0: This podcast is the dragon cave under the mountain, (laughs) full of gold stolen from dwarves.
2: It's the prayer of gratitude before a meal, except that prayer is rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But uh, it's really amazing to think that this is, uh, I mean, this movie is less than 100 years old, but it's not too far from the events it depicts in time. And the events it depicts in time are over a hundred years ago now.
0: Yeah. The film came out 12 years after the, after the war, the book it's based on came out 10 years after the war. And that book at the time, uh, the author was worried that 10 years after the war, no one would care to talk about the war or think about it anymore. Wow. We're currently living in a world where 40 years ago, uh, all of the things that happened forty years ago are still fresh in our minds because we still talk about them all the time. But then, like ten years after the war,
1: we we all want to forget about it. <laughs> hey, I'm trying to forget about the war here. <laughs> it's a painful memory. See, <laughs> but so there are
0: there are two or three movies within this movie, and I think it's a it's often a very beautiful movie filmed at a time when you could make a movie with 2,000 extras and everybody was getting $5 a day. I mean, like, how do you make a movie with 2,000 extras? There are people everywhere in so many of these shots.
1: Yeah, that opening shot where it pulls in through the, the window in the classroom and while this teacher is holding forth, there's just an unbroken parade outside the window that never stops. Like, it, it's totally unbelievable.
2: It would take a week to go back to one in the sequence.
0: Well, yeah, 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 right. Crazy. Okay,
1: everyone, let's try it again. <laughs> yeah, and you, you like, just do it with like a digital crowd these days, you know? Yeah. Like you, would, you wouldn't even bother having that many people.
0: And they're all perfectly costumed, and also the parade, like the people on either side of the parade, amount to another nine hundred people. Yeah, and there are multiple shots like that. Like the first time we see the depot and all the soldiers unloading. It's just people as far as the eye can see and many of those shots are through a window did you notice that visual yeah. late motif? Yeah a little framing Yeah
2: like it's it's building a little bit of separation between well, us and what we're seeing and
0: that's kind of what I was what I m- was starting to describe which is that anytime you had a conversation between men anytime there was a, a kind of um, an intimate setting it was always arranged like a crash within a small stage. So it was almost like a vaudeville stage where the the men would be kind of arranged in a semicircle and they would be, and there'd be no dynamic movement. It's just people sitting around talking. And then through the window, you would see all this cinematic, uh, but, but it seems like maybe it was a limitation either of the form or of the idea that we have talking now in movies And so we have to frame it like a play. That's the only way we can kind of think about, like, we're going to get six people talking here. How do we do it? Well, we put a couch over here and there's one door to the room. You know, Kowalski comes in and sits down, flops down on the couch. So that seemed like a separate film from the grand epic scale stuff. And then there was the third film, which was bloody real seeming I mean incredible explosions incredible battle scenes yeah that look that measured against the like intimate stuff it just seemed like where are what what, these are three movies
2: this film did a lot with its sound design as a as a film that seemed very self-aware about its talkiness I thought those battle scenes were incredibly ferociously loud Mm -hmm. I mean the the whistles of the bombs are even commented on. Like Kaczynski mentions the differences in those sounds and how one of them means you have to dive to the ground immediately and another one you can just let go. Like it's not a big deal. And it's amazing how you could hear those differences throughout the film for yourself. But one way in the, in which they were exactly the same is that they were very loud. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, the sound of the film, as I understand it, was recorded... They did a couple of prints. One of them was silent.
1: Yeah, they shot this on two different cameras at the same time, like they just set them up right next to each other so that there was like an international silent film version and a cuz they couldn't count on international theaters having the equipment to play back synchronized sound at that time. Is that the version you watched, John? <laughs> Yeah, I didn't understand the thing. That, no,
0: actually, I watched both versions simultaneously yeah. through a heads-up display, and it was in 3D.
1: <laughs>
0: I mean, you would be able to make a 3D version of this, right, if there were two cameras set up right next to each other?
1: I think they'd have to be—like, there's some calibration in that that isn't 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 uh, trivial, necessarily.
0: But you might be able to, to duplicate that with digi- digital. Somehow. Yeah, maybe. I mean, the maybe. people are clamoring for that version of this film.
2: <laughs> let's invest two million dollars as soon as someone buys a playstation vr system they're gonna want to experience
1: all
0: quiet on the western front
1: yeah it's the first thing you do right when you plug that thing in
0: (laughs) but so this movie is profoundly famous so much so i mean the book and the movie turned the term the, the phrase all quiet on the western front into like a part of our our permanent lexicon
1: I read the book in middle school history class. Really? Yeah. And uh simultaneously in English class we learned the uh the poem Dulce et decorum est which uh-huh. is referenced at the beginning in that in that opening scene where the teacher is whipping the boys into a patriotic fervor.
2: If you're new to the program, uh Ben is the
0: academic braggart of the group <laughs> that's right the the prep s- prep school snob who uh, who poses like a like a real
1: sjw i mean it, it just it was uh it really came roaring back to me in a yeah in did you like the way. book
2: it seems like it would be very mature for a middle schooler to to grok a book like this
1: yeah i mean. I, I, there was a lot of that in the school I went to, where I, I I really had to struggle through stuff, and this was like maybe one of the less struggly ones, but
0: because uh, it's an adventure I, book, even though it, it says right at the start, this is not an adventure book. Was it right.
2: hard to read from inside a locker?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I was one of the cool kids at my school, if you can believe that.
0: <laughs> well, it's it's interesting what this uh, what this sort of casts over our entire podcast, which is we're always looking at movies on this historic timeline and trying to figure out like when films introduced the brutality of war and stopped being sort of uh fantastical Hollywood creations rather than like true glimpses at, at the horrors of right, battle. Cause we
1: haven't watched like top gun yet, but, Right. I mean, but but, I'm sure we will, but we watch
0: a lot of movies set in the fifties where things are pretty clean. Story arcs are pretty clean. John Wayne is, you know, like he may die in the end, but he's pretty heroic throughout. And this movie is bleak and nihilistic and does not offer. There is no heroism in war and anyone that adopts a mentality that's nationalistic or heroic is played as a, as a real like not just a dupe but as an antagonist of the truth
1: yeah i mean it it has tonal similarities to like army army of shadows and some of the more anti like i think platoon maybe has some some tonal similarities as well where the the director and the and the narrative are there to make a case for not doing war And, you know, (laughs) John Wayne didn't make a lot of uh, anti-war films in his career, as far as I'm aware.
0: Right. Like, there are at least two scenes where the shelling ends up shelling a cemetery or a stack of coffins. Like, really hitting you over the head with irony. I mean, that scene where they're looking for cover in a cemetery and the bombs keep falling and he actually falls into a grave... Yeah, and he's like I'm safe, and then he's like, "Oh no, I'm in a coffin!" Like, wow, that's not funny.
2: Yeah, I was really unprepared for the film's brutality because it it eases you into this war hot tub of like, we're off to go fight, sure, zippity doo, like, let's, let's go be heroes, and then you see like two amputated hands on a on a string of barbed wire. Not long after. Like that there are so many amputations in this film many war films like build into that climax of the amputation scene and this film is thick with them every other scene is an amputation scene its amputations
0: all the way down <laughs> <laughs> Well you know that Ted Bundy said if you want to catch a bunch of serial killers you just you throw a horror movie film festival and then stand outside with a camera and just take (laughs) a bunch of pictures of everybody that goes. Like, you know, pick the grossest horror movies and- uh, Is that what he said? Yeah, he said that's how you find all the serial killers because it'll be full of, like horror movie festivals are full of those people. And I think you just show All Quiet on the Western Front over and over and just stand there taking pictures. Anybody that comes in a trench coat (laughs) with, uh, with like garters on their socks like hold it hold it there let me get a shot of you
1: so world war 1 I, I mean like trench warfare is the thing but the other thing that i think about with world war 1 is poison gas and that's not depicted at all in this film which i thought was surprising right. given how you know how much the movie is about war being hell
0: i think you know i think poison gas it, when we think of world war 1 it's one of the crimes against humanity That um, and, you know, Hitler famously was gassed and there was gas happened. Gas happens. I mean, that's what Hitler is famous for, right? Yeah. 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 Is that our
1: next T-shirt? It's Hitler's face and it says gas happens.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He he was also famous for his painting. Oh. (laughs) But but I don't think that gas was a universal experience. I think it happened. I mean, Both sides sort of experimented with it and they found that when you gas your enemy, the wind changes and you pretty much just gas everybody. Like gas isn't a really great strategy. Um, There would be times where if you smelt it, you dealt it. Oh, for shizzle! And then you die. That's right. (laughs) Hey, there's another shirt. (laughs) (laughs) You smelt it, you dealt it. You die. A bunch of of people with gas masks on. Uh Yeah. so i don't i think I think that the you know the most common experience of people in trenches was the constant shelling, constant like increasingly accurate never ending shelling, and they certainly played that. I wonder game. if it was a choice
2: with the use of gas masks like this is a cast of beautiful young people, and you don't want to expend a lot of runtime on covering up these faces, right?
0: yeah, but it may also be just that at the time. You know, like the World War, World War Two movies that we saw immediately after the war don't really address the Holocaust at all mm-hmm. um, yeah. because it wasn't as well understood and as widely disseminated. And so I think maybe the the focus we have on gas being a, a big feature of the war is something that we we graduated into. Mm. I mean, there were in all of World War One, 11 million people died in, just in the trenches, not including civilians and stuff. And most of those people died as a result of machine gun fire. I think, I mean, I think the big, big invention that changed the war was the, was the machine gun was the thing that hadn't really been a factor before. And we saw that too.
1: Uh, yeah. I always look for things that people quibble about in, uh, uh in watching these movies and, uh, Read a bunch of things on IMDb. One of the things, um, this isn't my, my uh, pedantic moment that I pulled out, but um, mm-hmm. those machine guns are were, were like, super high-powered and really, like, tore people apart. Like, the World War One veteran who's missing two limbs, that's almost always because of machine gun fire, from what I read. And uh, they depict guys getting hit by machine gun fire in this movie, and they're just kind of going, like, oh, oh, oh and then falling over in
0: reality it's more of like an artillery they didn't have explode, hit. exploding blood packets quite with the technology that we have now
1: yeah i mean it's uh, it's i mean it's interesting right like given how gruesome some of the imagery is that they that they do kind of soften the impact of the of the machine gun fire in some ways
0: i think they i, I think the the scenes that really communicated machine gun fire to me were the ones where they were assaulting a trench and the camera was on a dolly and moving down the trench as we saw every single soldier get shot down and just and the the camera just kept moving along this trench and we just saw one after another after another of these soldiers charging and then about two minutes later when the counter charge happened uh we saw again the exact scene repeated except the other side the other uniforms again long long dolly shot and just one after another after another and it was such an incredible depiction of the futility of those charges the futility of trench warfare and it was uh, you know it was a hundred percent just
2: the anonymity of an individual soldier also yeah is lost there you're just meat for the grinder Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover
0: artists and albums that I've never heard of.
2: Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week.
1: Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes, and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives.
0: Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talk about albums by Prince Joni Mitchell and so much more. Yo,
2: what's that show called again?
0: Heat Rocks Deep Dives into Hot Records.
2: you know war turns a gentle person into into a war fighting cynical badass killer because like you see that change early on you see it with the mailman who goes through this transition of, like, Mr. McFeely turns into Sergeant Hartman from Full Metal Jacket. And I expected, like like so many war films teach you what they are very early on, I expected, okay, this is going to be a story about these transitions. But I felt like outside of the, of the Paul character, everyone stays pretty true to their nature.
0: I mean, they stay true to their nature, but they lose their... I mean, it's about losing your innocence. None of them it it was clear from Paul, Paul's our proxy, right? It was clear that he could never go home. He went back to his town and he felt either revulsion at the at the way people at the rah 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 feeling of folks back home, or he just felt pathos. He didn't want to be there. He didn't certainly didn't want to be in the trenches, but it was the only place he ever he felt comfortable anymore. And our I think we were we were meant to understand that that would have been true of all the troops, except every single buddy else died. And then in the end, Paul died. So it's like, well, well done war. I mean, the mess, the message is 100% bleak.
1: I just also think we don't follow any of the other characters closely enough to see a change like that. Cause, cause that's such a subtle thing. Like that doesn't, that change doesn't affect the way he behaves when he's around other soldiers, you know? Like, he's still Paul, he's, the, he's he's still the same Paul to all of them. It's It's that the war has ruined everything else for him.
2: The tragedy inside the tragedy of this war, and specifically Paul's war, is not having been understood. Like, he is there to testify about what he's seen and his experiences there and no one believes him. Yeah. And not only do does well, no one believe him. Well they're probably picturing a very different
1: kind of war, right? They're telling him
2: how it is. When he's <laughs> when he's saying how it is.
0: It's insane. Well this is the war where the phrase the generals are always fighting the last war. That's where this this that's where that phrase came from. Because the generals in World War I were still basic. I mean, the early parts of the war, they were still mounting cavalry charges. I, I always get taken to task for pronouncing that world, word wrong. Calvary? Calvary? <laughs> Calvary. 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 Anyway, you know, they, there, was, there was a lot of horse action in World War I. And the machine gun and the, and the super accurate artillery were brand new things and the generals just had bad tactics and when he when paul goes back home and all these old men are telling him what you know telling him that it's just a matter of time before they sweep down to paris yeah they're all probably veterans of the you know of some war in africa or crimea and they're telling him all about how war is they've never been bombed by a biplane they never saw a machine gun yeah
1: they were never issued a gas mask
0: I mean, they're they're from a world of bayonet charges and and trumpets on the battlefield. So I, World War One was an unprecedented, at the time, unprecedented swing into modern war. And I don't think anybody, even you know, even the officers on the battlefield, they just didn't know how to. I mean, these incredible charges where fifty thousand people die in one day on the Somme, where it's just like, well, that last charge didn't work over the over the breach you know or into the breach i guess that's from a different war but just sending more and more men and they just watch them all get cut down and like well they're going to run out of bullets eventually it's insane
1: it's kind of a waypoint between old style war and modern war also cuz there's like very yeah, they weren't lasers yeah <laughs> but like but like world war 2 didn't get get like bogged down in trench warfare for four years like this, you know? Right. I mean, there was, there was movement.
0: 60 million people died in World War II, but a (laughs) a lot of the, a lot of those were civilian people. Uh, Most of them, in fact. But yeah, that's right. I mean, World War II returned to the kind of fast motion of horse. It was just mechanized. You couldn't build a trench. And that was the, that was where the Maginot line failed. That's a that's the the classic fighting the last war thing. The French built the Maginot Line to keep the Germans out, and it was the, a giant fortified trench along the entire border of France. And then the Germans just went around the outside.
2: <laughs> you made a great case for why we're not seeing the the deployment of gas in this film. What we do get are trenchfuls of people beating each other to death with hammers.
0: Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, and sho- like 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 trench shovels. Right. Like, oh, that's nice. Why don't we watch this Katherine Hepburn movie now? You know, like we sho- make a very specific uh
2: choice not to compare war films to one another, but in terms of savagery, this film is really hard to beat.
1: It's weird because it all of the trench fighting shots are overcranked, so they are a little cartoonish to our eyes now. But what they're depicting is so messed up. It's like guys who have pulled the bayonets off their rifles and are just like close quarters stabbing each other in the chest.
0: Well, think about that scene in the in the crater where he stabs the Frenchman and then sits in the crater with him for two days, watching him die and going going insane, alternately trying to save him and wishing he would just go ahead and die.
2: He's watching people A team
0: jump over his uh, yeah over his crater the whole time. I mean, what, what even modern film would go. So, I mean, that's a scene directly out of private Ryan, right? That yeah. scene up, up in the house where he stabs the guy that he stabs one of our friends and, you know, and gives right in his face. Like, shh, shh, just take it. Just take it. Yeah. I mean, and there's cowardice in that story, but this, you know, that scene in that, in that hole, my my Lord. That's not quite, I mean, you know, the other movies that came out in 1930 are like animal crackers.
2: (laughs) (laughs) When Bane gets blinded by shrapnel in that first scene and then like wanders out onto the battlefield screaming, he gets gunned down and then he gets dragged back into a bunker and Kaczynski might as well be addressing the audience when he says it's a corpse no matter who it is, no matter who you are or where you are. Like when you're out here, you're already dead. He really kind of level sets the conflict early on.
1: It's... Interesting from just like a expectation setting standpoint too. Cause Bane is the guy on the poster. Like, yeah, he, like he, he appeared and, a, and he's the, he's the one that's like a little bit reluctant at the beginning in the, in the classroom scene.
0: Yeah.
2: The tragedy is he's talked into this.
1: Yeah. It's, it looks like it's going to be a movie about him, you know? And, and, and then, you know, he's not the first guy that dies. Cause the first guy that dies is just kind of like summarily shelled in the, in the rail depot.
0: The death starts right away. Well, and Kaczynski is is I think the most interesting slash appealing character in the film. He's the one that maybe plays his role the closest to naturally, and he's also the one that from the very beginning, w- when they arrive with the with the squad, he has the most capability. He feels like the father. He's got those
2: real red from Shawshank Redemption vibes where he can just procure things. Right. No matter where
1: he's at. Got to have one of those guys in a war film.
0: Yeah. He maintains a level headedness no matter what's going on. He seems to have seen it all. Although the, the film starts at the beginning of the war. So it's just that he's, it's just that he's 40 and everyone else in the movie is 19. And, so it, it it isn't that he's a seasoned veteran of a thousand conflicts or he hasn't been in the trenches for eight years. It's just that he's a grown man and knows how to.
1: Knows how to steal a pig.
0: It's kind of like my role in this podcast. <laughs> Except for you your guys. 50. Are, you guys are just wet behind the ears, little tadpoles. <laughs> and I'm sort of a dad who never flinches and I steal pigs.
2: It's interesting <laughs> the message about leadership in this film, right? Like, like it portrays, uh, as a total badass in the beginning, but he's also never seen combat. Right. And we get Kaczynski later who has seen it all. And he is not nearly the asshole that Himmelstrass is. Well, Himmelstrass then is revealed to be a coward. Yeah. Um, but it really makes the case for the full of shitness of the angry tropey drill sergeant character who hasn't actually been in the shit. It seems like new territory for
0: 1930. Well, and I, I think when we've talked about this many times, which is that we, there, there's always a a prejudice or a bias of modernity of the present day Mm -hmm. where we imagine that we are the most informed, the most seasoned, the people with the clearest eyed view of history and the world. We can't look back with the, with quite the same um, condescension at people from the past and imagine that they didn't understand the futility of war. They didn't understand the um, the the full of shitness of politics, um, but in a in a sophisticated way, not just not just in a sort of uh, people that had only read the Bible way. We see the officer periodically and he acquits himself pretty well but he also does not fraternize yeah right he turns around and goes to and does officer things
1: yeah he's not a dick like like in that scene where they're they're there to get their food and the guy is cooked for 150 men but only 80 of them are still alive and he's pissed about it like the the officer is like is there to make sure that everybody gets all of the food that they can
0: And that's a scene of everything in the movie. I mean, there are a couple of scenes that are kind of played lightheartedly. And that is a crazy scene because it's played lightheartedly. But the entire premise is that half of the men are dead. Give us twice the food. And the guy's like, no that's I'm not allowed and yet they and they kind of play it like fun almost
1: yeah but like uh, but it, don't hold our good luck against us is I think one of the lines that one of them says
0: <laughs> yeah right like oh yeah they're sorry with they're sorry there's not enough I mean you would think that that would be mournful but but not
2: but even that win is a loss because they eat themselves sick yeah right they, they eat can't
0: even beans. enjoy it I, that's how I describe my every single day yeah, I, if I you ever want to see beans.
1: how how John Roderick <laughs> holds his spoon, watch this scene.
0: <laughs> That's the other great thing. Those spoons are full on like punch bowl w- ladles. Yeah, right. It's like it's like the scene in The Road Warrior where the <laughs> helicopter pilot is trying to get dog food out of a can with a <laughs> with a wooden stirring spoon. <laughs> the kind of soldier every one of you should envy. Yeah, I can So I cannot imagine. Uh, the The audience for this movie in the theaters at the time, veterans of the conflict, yeah, must have freaked out inside at the effect of being shelled. If you'd ever been in, if you were in this war, this film got you close enough to it. But of course, at the time, you couldn't display post-traumatic stress disorder because it it, it wasn't understood. You couldn't display emotion or or um, the after effects of the war. You weren't. It wasn't socially acceptable. So I'm sure there were all kinds of veterans who were dragged to see this movie or went in bravely like, sure, I'll see it. And sat down and just were like, hey, I was in that war. I already watched train drives its screen. <laughs> this will be a piece of cake. <laughs> and then sat there in their seats just like holding on for dear life. Yeah, because there's nothing there nothing is spared really.
1: Cuz the act, like the acting is super hokey but they do get real emotions out of these characters occasionally and and like abject terror is played wrong is super silly to look at but it is not in this movie.
2: I didn't think I would end up writing for Paul the way I did by the end because his like smarmy James Deanness,
0: ness yeah. like just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Well, and he does some real like playing to the back of the room acting in the first half of the movie. He's yeah. also
2: like 10 questions guy when one will do like, where are we going? What are we doing? But by the time the light goes out in his eyes 20 minutes from the end, like I am all for him and I'm with him for the rest of the film in a way I did not
0: expect. Yeah. He's awful pretty. And there are, like you say, a lot of, a lot of beautiful boys in this movie. And I think that's intentional because the sense of the war in its time was that we had lost an entire generation of talented, beautiful, young Europeans. Like every nation lost its whole youth what that experience must have been like to them i'm sure they you know they misremembered all their all their young boys as as glowy as the actors in the movie yeah this
2: the scene that evokes that feeling for me is that scene in the hospital where where franz gets a leg amputated and then dies that's when the light goes out in paul and i feel like that that evokes the feeling of like The loss of a country's hope in a positive outcome for this war. Any sense of optimism I think is gone at that point as as Paul staggers out of that hospital room.
0: Yeah, in particular the and I think this was a criticism in its own moment that the medical staff throughout the film was so blasé because we remember the the where the the, they grab the doctor and they're like, Help our boy and he's like, Which one? Well, he's got an amputated leg. And the doctor's like, I amputated 10 legs today. Like, get more specific. And nine of them are left. Like, (laughs) what are the odds? Like, it's weird, right? (laughs) And I threw them all in the Salish Sea wearing tennis shoes. (laughs) Why do they keep floating up here? Uh, That's a little local color. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) Hopefully listeners to this program are aware of the Canadian floating feet episode of the Omnibus podcast. Are you Mm. plugging other shows on our show? (laughs) Why didn't they tell me?
1: The actor that played Kemmerich in that scene went on to own a couple of Ford dealerships, one in Highland Park and one in San Francisco. Oh, really? Yeah. A California guy. Yeah. Stick your one remaining foot on the gas and head on down to to Kemmerich (laughs) Ford. (laughs) Uh... A lot of the background actors in this film were German veterans, like veterans of the German side of this war. They were they a a ton of them had emigrated to L.A. And like this movie hired tons of them, like for technical advisory roles and just to be like extras that were like moving the right way and wearing the uniforms correctly. And uh, one of them was Fred Zinneman, who went on to direct From Here to Eternity
0: about that yeah hollywood what a small town in 1929
1: yeah fired for impudence it said in the uh, in the thing i read from this film yeah he was fired for impudence
0: how in a cast of 2,000 do you distinguish yourself for impudence? You must be know. incredibly impudent.
1: <laughs> incredibly impudent was my nickname in high school.
0: <laughs> I don't think that it was pronounced impudent.
1: <laughs> well, I think it had a different vowel I look in the middle at, there. <laughs> I look at the past through rose-colored glasses, John. And- <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, Was that a nickname you got from the girls in the school? I'm glad we're interrogating this. Oh, let's interrogation. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I think uh, I think like another thing about the film that we haven't addressed yet is that this is from the vantage point of our enemy in the war, and we never see an American in the entire film. Uh, The enemy is always French or to a lesser extent, I think Canadians at one point. Most of this movie is filmed before the American entry into the war, which only came in 1917.
1: Well, the French and the Germans had the best helmets in the war, so. For
0: sure, and you notice every French soldier is like wine bloated, (laughs) like uh, each French, every French soldier we see up close looks like a pile of pate with a mustache. (laughs)
2: Be careful, Ben's gonna start taking great umbrage at <laughs> depiction.
0: Um,
1: the, Are uh, you French, Ben? No, I just uh, I, you
0: just take umbrage on behalf of all the world's peoples.
2: Yeah, on behalf of the French, as as the show's
0: main <laughs> francophile. Yeah,
1: uh, the the guy that also dies, French.
0: They do not look like a pate. <laughs> Sacre bleu.
1: the guy that's uh, slowly bleeding out in the uh, in the crater. Uh, that guy was one of, uh, as you mentioned, one of the big uh, silent film actors in the film. And he actually couldn't speak. He had, like, a disease as a child that damaged his vocal cords or something. And uh, and so, like, silent movie actor was, like, a great job for him. And this uh, kind of marks the end of his career. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah.
0: Well, you see in his acting in that scene... Uh, a transition between silent acting and the, and modern acting, because when he looks over, he's sitting there dying. And when he looks over and sees Paul right in his face and realizes that Paul is his killer, he bugs his eyes out in this way over the top sort of uh, Laurel and Hardy way. Yeah. of Like, <laughs> but then for most of the rest of the, of the film, of his scene he acts pretty consistently well as a dying guy but then amazingly he dies in front of us and and maintains total stillness and death mask as paul acts all around him and like quite an accomplishment to be that dead for that long
1: it's like eyes open head up dead
0: yeah Uh, And, you know, he still has the the glow of eyes that aren't quite dead, but he does the best eyes open dead you'll ever see. That's sort of Adam's role in this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Eyes open dead was my high school nickname.
1: (laughs) Speaking of the helmets, it seemed like the German helmets change at a certain point in the war. Like they have those kind of cloth covered spike on top ones at the beginning and then they look a lot more like the ones they wore in world war ii toward the end
0: yeah that those helmets were developed during the war i think there were a lot of there was a lot of um technology evolution as the war went on but those the german helmets they realized that the spiky helmets didn't really protect one's uh the side of one's head or
1: yeah i mean they had those big cutouts for the ears
0: yeah right They were, they were meant, I mean, and those were cloth covered, but under that cloth, they were shiny, spiky helmets with big gold eagles on them. They put those, they put that cloth on there because when they first showed up on the battlefield, they were easy targets, right? Their helmets were shiny. I mean, I think when, when the, when the soldiers first clashed at the beginning of the war, like they were, one of the armies had bright red tunics (laughs) Like, honestly, ready to fight the Boer War. Yeah. And then they realized, you know, we need darker uniforms and maybe less flashy helmets.
1: And by the end, they had those pretty great, like. Maybe resplendence isn't the advantage we (laughs) once thought it was.
0: I'm going to take the feathers out of my helmet. (laughs) They seem to signal my presence. By the
2: end, they were wearing Cleveland Browns NFL practice jerseys. Yeah.
1: My bright white jodhpurs have been shredded on all that razor wire. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but we see in this war the development of the tank, which did not exist at the beginning and was pretty, pretty refined by the end. A lot of the machine guns were water-cooled, so they had hoses that came out of the barrels and went down into a big tank of water and cycled water around the barrel in order to cool it. And we see airplanes arrive on the scene. Air, an airplane plays a pivotal role toward the end. Right. Where that airplane pilot really had it out for cat. Yeah. Like how many bombs did he have in that plane? He threw he threw 3 of them down at these two dudes who were just sort of walking along,
1: targets of opportunity.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that guy right there. I could fly over a church and kill 1100 guys, but I'm going to I'm going to throw these bombs down on him. I hate the protagonist of this movie.
1: All those pigs I bought, they, <laughs> they always show up one short. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That ribbon on the German jackets that kind of like attaches to one button and then comes down at an angle and like tucks in behind the the placket, uh, I've seen in World War II movies I guess I hadn't seen before in a World War I movie, and I wondered what the significance of that is. Do you know, John?
0: so it's a it is actually a battle award you don't you don't see it on all of the uniforms you see it on um you see it on paul
1: yeah Uh, and it shows up like toward maybe like after he's gone home or something like that
0: so the way the iron cross was awarded it had multiple classes and you know if you're erwin rommel you walk around with the Full iron cross with you know with all the laurel wreaths like up in the up at your neck and the thing is about five inches square.
1: You, you look a little like, bit like Flava Flave.
0: <laughs> Do you know what time it is? It's Iron Cross time. I wear the cross so you can know the iron. <laughs> but there's like there's like. <laughs> Um, the, it's So it's a way of saying like he'd gotten a battle award and I don't know, I don't know if um, like the, uh, the, and they were different colors, red and blue and so forth the, for different uh, like uh, classes of iron yeah. cross. So it meant that he was battle decorated and there's, and actually there's, um, there's a scene when he's in the town, one of the old dudes makes a passing reference to winning the iron cross. So it would, it would have been a thing that everybody knew about, remarked upon.
1: Is it analogous to like the silver star or something like that? Or, I mean, is there, yeah. is that something that you can actually make a comparison?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Of? It's like, it's like a, there, so I'm sure that like, cause the there's like a bronze star it, and a
1: silver star, right?
0: Right. The lowest class of it is probably equivalent to a bronze star and then the higher classes are silver star. And I think the highest class of iron cross is probably I mean it's obvious it's not as it's not any kind of medal of honor um that would be something else that would be that would be uh, Here comes the letters <laughs> <laughs> But you know yeah there are equivalents John people. Roderick doesn't believe your awards are meritorious <laughs> <laughs> It's better than mentioned in dispatches, Uh-huh. but not quite up to Congressional Medal of Honor. Oh, I'm sorry, Medal of Honor, not Congressional Medal of Honor. That's a different thing.
1: Well, speaking of uh, <laughs> speaking of people writing pedantic letters, uh, I've, I haven't found a elegant place to shove this in. But do you guys want to hear the my favorite thing that somebody quibbled with in this movie? Then that
2: was your college nickname. <laughs> <laughs>
0: He's the littlest elegant quibble.
1: Where is it supposed to go? <laughs> uh, uh, does, this, uh, does this seem like a good time to bring it up? Oh, yeah. Put it in. Okay. <laughs> you guys are awful. Awful. <laughs> When the young recruits go out on their first patrol to add barbed wire entanglement, the veteran, uh, that's Cat, I guess, uses a mallet to drive the post into the ground. While the movie went to the trouble to have the right kind of post, they used it completely wrong. That post was developed by the Germans to allow them to put up barbed wire much more quietly than the Allies. The bottom portion of each post is twisted into an auger. This allowed the soldiers to simply put it on the ground and put a rod through it and screw it into the ground. This was one of the innovations that the Allies copied. Both sides had listening posts near the wire on their sides to listen for infiltrating wire crews. Once they were detected, they would have been cut to pieces by machine guns or mortar fire. I went back and rewatched that scene after reading it and sure enough there is a a screw shape on the bottom of that of that post that they're putting up.
2: One of the low-key grisliest parts of this scene is that they're they're putting the barbed wire up without wearing gloves. Just barehanded barbed wire work.
0: Yeah. 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 There's a shot of one soldier passing the barbed wire down the line. Oh, that's the worst job. He's very carefully putting his hand between the uh, the snags. But his hands are all bloody because you, know like, oh, you know he missed one. That's awful. As someone who's worked extensively with barbed wire. Uh, and dated a couple of girls that were made of barbed wire. Uh, I know the feeling. Can cut to pieces. Speaking of women. Mm-hmm. Oh.
2: <laughs> there are actually real life women in this film with thoughts, feelings, and motivations. It's true. They, they appear
0: like sirens on the other side of a river that they're, they're bathing in. It's true. And they're absolutely contemptuous of the appeal of, of the, uh, the soldiers who are trying to tempt them. And then appears a sausage. And a loaf of bread that gets,
1: like, dipped in the river a bunch of times. You don't
0: want that river bread. Well, but that's German bread, which is impenetrable to any kind of... I mean, the only thing it will soak up is... Yeah, you can make a door knocker out of that bread, That's right. Right. That is some hard black bread. And
1: I guess these these French girls living on this river know from German bread, so they don't don't, uh, tell them to head back the other way when they see the bread get wet.
0: Well, and I got to say, those sausages... were pretty appealing. I don't mean sausages. I mean big salamis. Those were like Are enormous. Are you talking about
2: food or dick?
0: I'm talking about the <laughs> salami that they tempted the girl with. Now you decide which salami I'm talking about. <laughs> Fair
2: amount of nudity in the river too, right? You see some side butt. You do. You see you butt. See, you see some, some rear nudity.
0: And then what I took to be pre haze Code, pretty broad suggestion of of sex. Yeah, which I, you know, later on, I mean, if you think about from here to eternity, which which was made over 20 years later, the closest they get to uh, depicting sex is the the famous scene where the where they're making out on the beach and then the waves come in and splash over them and everybody's like, (gasps) "Ooh, sex wave. (laughs) But this we actually see them. We hear the we hear their pillow talk. Uh, and see them in silhouette there's no, n- nothing left to the imagination except we don't actually see them doing it it's not nine and a half weeks but pretty racy <laughs> for the time yeah there's a very familiar moment here in the dinner
2: scene where paul is kind of hitting on suzanne and she could not be less interested in hearing what he has her to face say in salami she, she's just all into that meal yeah that's very
0: pre-getting married, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> well, my only thought as he was kissing her hand and like getting real close was like, how hot even then would have salami breath been? Oof. Right. Like just right in there, like my darling, he was, you know, they hadn't <laughs> seen women in a long time, maybe ever. And she's just like, gobble, 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 just <laughs> salami in her teeth. <laughs> he can't get enough of it. Yeah. Was that what your, your courtship was like? <laughs> what's what's the first war movie we'll see that depicts a, some toothbrushing?
2: haven't <laughs> oh, <yeah, laughs> seen one yet.
0: We've never seen it, have we? Oh. But yeah, that was and that was a compelling scene because the we we get a we get a real sense and this this happened in both wars, World War 1 and World War 2. The armies of Europe, the Germans and the French. Uh they they procured their food and support materiel by just taking it from the locals they scrounged for food they they those pigs that we saw didn't come from germany those were pigs that they got from local farmers
1: right that wasn't the german supply line he was stealing it from
0: no, it was just, I mean, they were living off the land. And That's so, such a great scene of Act As If by Kaczynski. Like, just yeah. get in line. Just get in See line. See what happens. Grab that grab that, uh, that, thrown pig. Yeah. It's sort of like the Pike Place Market here, except yeah. the pig. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but what, what astonished the Germans both times in the invasion of Europe, you know, in D-Day era, and also in World War One was when the American troops did show up, they brought their own food like we had the resources to provide, to provide gasoline, ammunition, and food to our men without having to take it from the locals. And that was, in both wars, a sign to the Germans that the Americans couldn't be defeated. What, however they thought of us in battle, they realized that we could just roll over them because we had the-
1: Because we the, packed a lunch?
0: Yeah, because we packed a lunch. And we, and we packed a bag of gas, too. And that was my nickname in (laughs) college. You
1: you beat me to it, man. (laughs) There's a long conversation at one point about like, who wants this war? Why are we even fighting it? And like, that's a conversation that we're used to. That's a conversation that pretty much every Vietnam film has had. Uh, not as many World War II movies have had it, so I thought it was interesting to see it here. It surprised me, given how jingoistic their their teacher was in that opening scene, that they hadn't been just, like, totally bought into some narrative about why why the war was being fought and what good it would do them and their country.
0: I think they did at the beginning, and that was part of us watching their disillusionment. Was at a certain, having fought it for a couple of years, they realized that whatever the, you know, whatever the, the rationale for it was, it just wasn't borne out by watching everyone die.
1: I guess it's that scene where they're, they're eating themselves silly after cycling back from the front. So they're like, they've, they've actually seen what the war looks like up close now and can, uh, can. Can bring some of their own expertise to that conversation.
2: It's about this time in the film that I thought the like the tragedy of tragedies happens, which is Paul runs into Kaczynski on the trail and the bombs rain down, and Paul is in position to what he believes save his life. Save, save the life of his mentor. Yeah. And Kaczynski a guy that we've grown to love. He's not in the film too much, which is disappointing because I think he's one of the most likable characters in it. The moment where Paul realizes that he's carried Kaczynski's dead body back behind the line for what he believes to be life-saving measures that, that don't end up happening is just, it's, it's, tragedy after tragedy for
0: paul and this might have been the last draw for him right well yeah other deaths in the movie particularly early on he does some real over emotive acting yeah no you know "Ah!" and by the time he realizes cat is dead it's the resignation in this
2: scene that makes it so awful yeah he doesn't like
1: resigned before the death even happens because it's that conversation about like like give me a break we're gonna push on to paris they have 10 planes for every plane we have like we're not pushing on to paris this is ridiculous and, and,
0: and cat says even this war isn't gonna end until i die um but he you know when the when the orderly or the medic says uh you wasted your time this guy's dead Paul just, I mean, talk about dead eyed. Yeah. He doesn't even like, he doesn't even cross himself or put his hand on him. He just turns and like walks off in total defeat. And yeah, by this point in the movie, you're with Paul all the way. But he also, he's indicated by by now that he is lost. There is no Paul to come back to. My grandfather and grandmother met in France during World War One, and my grandmother was a USO singer for the troops, and my grandfather was a, a grenade-throwing instructor, and then you know, and then ended up in the trenches.
2: Well, those who can't throw teach. That's right. That's right. Uh,
1: That's a, yeah. Actually, Adam's grandfather was also a grenade throwing instructor, but he just taught how to throw pins. That was in the Polish army. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: Thanks for punching that up, John. (laughs) Yeah. Well. I, ben Ben forgot the good part. <laughs>
2: I,
1: left, I, I, I left the internal logic there for you to figure it out. Yeah, ben, but Ben well, forgot
0: the good part, and he doesn't know where to put it in. But we're hoping we're <laughs> we're hoping that we have some new listeners, so they may not understand the anti-Polish humor that that permeates the entire show uh-huh. and your guys' oeuvre.
1: Yeah,
0: uh, but my grandfather was um, damaged by World War One. In a way that he never quite recovered from and, um, and ended up sort of, um, well, drinking himself to death as a result of, at the age of 50, at the res- as the result of being, I mean, what he, I guess, later described as shell shock. So, like, there I have a real personal connection to the, to the battle scenes. I've been, I've toured the trenches of, of, of Belgium and France and actually went to one of the one of the big memorials at Vimy Ridge where there are where I have relatives buried in those big big fields of white crosses you know because my dad was older and my grandfather was older when he was born like i'm only one generation removed from that war or is that two generations removed i don't remember which which, how, which way it's described. Two kisses away, let's say. Rob can just edit in which generation you are. Thanks, Rob. Away. I said both things. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what was your big takeaway from seeing these sites in person?
0: Well, the the earth is still incredibly scarred. There's still rusty barbed wire in the ground and shell holes... So not a place for flip flops. Not at all. And you know, and you're prohibited from going out onto some of the battlefields because there's still live ordnance. You know, they still continue to plow up unexploded shells like French farmers. Yeah,
1: Yeah, like instead of like we have the US Geological Survey and the the survey organizations in Germany and France are like a big part of what they do is like look for unexploded bombs.
2: Ben, would this be La Survey
0: Geologique? (laughs) It's, I think it was it was best that you kind of burped in the middle, yeah. or you hiccuped in the middle of that. <laughs> I didn't know where to go. Well, that was re- that was real authentic. Yeah, that's how it would have been in France
1: too. If you were yeah. if you were Did French, you, love you love would you g- would g- g- you would pause to take a puff you, of cigarette or a uh, or uh, uh, gulp you know, of Hennessy. Uh-huh. <laughs> the cemetery that they kind of dissolve to—it's like half dissolved to at the in that last shot—almost looks like a painting that's all right there i guess
0: all the armies have cemeteries in belgium so there are german cemeteries in belgium there are american cemeteries there and french cemeteries um, and it was part of the understanding after the war that that you that there was accommodation made that the germans could come maintain their cemeteries there
1: right because they had so much re- so many resources after the war to do things like that
0: yeah, that's right. And that, you know, that's the, that's the thing that we don't see in this movie is we get to the end and strategically throughout the, the entire course of the war, no one moved. The, the front lines moved a kilometer back and forth at a time at the most. Um, and so all the deaths accomplished nothing. And toward the very end of the war, the Germans actually broke through and made a big thrust toward Paris, and that stalled at, and that was kind of, the Germans had expended their last sort of uh, energy, sort of like the Battle of the Bulge in World War II. They just made one last push, but it was a successful thing. It was just that they looked at the Americans pouring into France and all of our resources, and they were like, there's no way we we can fight this but it was more or less a stalemate when the Germans surrendered and the people of Germany and the German army assumed that at surrender, because it was more or less a stalemate, they would sort of shake hands and go to their respective corners. And it was then that Britain and France specifically applied really punitive uh, terms during the treaties that came afterwards and woodrow wilson was the 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 broker but it turned out he wasn't sort of the strong personality everyone hoped he, germany wasn't ruined any more than any other country by the war but germany was destroyed after the war do you get the
2: feeling that someone who's watching this movie in 1930 we we see paul get killed Reaching for a butterfly, we see these ghost soldiers marching into a cemetery, like just walking themselves in. The film is over. Do you think that the feeling afterwards is well? We're never gonna do that again. Like World Wars suck. It was the war to end all wars. That's what they called it. And this is 1930. World War Two is is online in very fairly short order after this. How does that happen?
0: This this film was banned by the Nazis like while it was being shown in theaters. I mean, the Nazis weren't yet in control. Uh, that didn't happen for a little bit later, but they were, they were, uh, they protested. They would go in, in their Nazi way and disrupt actual screenings. They threw stink bombs into theaters. They accused it of being a anti-German Jewish propaganda like this, even in its moment the war was ramping up
2: it's incredible i mean you talked about at the beginning of the show just how short the memories are for something like this how how the author of the book didn't think anyone would remember how interesting that uh turns
0: out no one did when well, it came to start world war ii armistice was in november of 1918 and the germans invaded poland in 1938 20 years later not even 20 years later because the Germans invaded in the spring. Can you imagine being a veteran of both wars? Yeah, you were 19 in the first war and 39 at the beginning of the second war. Like, okay, well, I guess I'm back in it. Time to make the gruel. Right, or survive the first war and then die on the first day of the second war. Right. Ugh. Well, and, you know, I mean, the course of history was changed. If you think about neither of those wars happening, what, what was lost in terms of People and capital and intellectual growth. And, you know, at the end of the 19th century, Europe was in a period of flower. And we think of it now, it was also the height of the colonial era. So it wasn't without its dark side, right? But it was also a time of great poetry and architecture, the beginning of modernism. Think about the paintings that were happening then. And the, I mean, it was. It was an aesthetic time, and it was all burned.
1: I'm just looking at casualties here: like five point five million military dead, uh, almost thirteen million wounded on the Allied side, four point four million dead on German and Austrian side, uh, over eight million wounded. Totally, like mind boggling, and uh, and the idea that twenty years later they it ramped up. That much more like the uh, the killing power of these armies ramped up that much more is like really astonishing like that going through something like this wasn't enough to convince everybody that there must be better ways to solve these these problems
0: turns out no I mean and then immediately after the war influenza killed at least as many people and influenza that you could argue was spread by the war, spread by the effect of that many people moving internationally that way. Well, it turns out there were just too many people <laughs> in nineteen ten. <1910. laughs> but this is a hell of a movie. We gotta rate it, right?
2: Yeah, I think we should. This is my only job on this show. It's rating the film and each film gets its own its own personal rating so that we don't compare films to themselves. For All Quiet on the Western Front, there was a moment, barely early on, like, we're getting to know these characters through the things that they care about, right? And for one character in particular, uh, his boots were a point of pride. He's, uh, It'd be a pleasure
1: to go to the front in a pair of boots like that.
2: Right? You hear all the time about, about how important it is to keep your feet dry on the battlefield, have comfortable footwear. For your war fighting and uh and franz has these really nice boots that everyone just ogles they're beautiful even in black and white you can tell mm-hmm. these are beautiful boots corinthian leather and they stand out as this as this object from the way things were pre-war like they were a thing that you could viably bring along with you as a personal item and also that also had great utility can think of another thing that you could get away with in that way. You're not bringing your hunting rifle from home, <laughs> but you can bring your own boots, I guess. And Franz's nice boots, I think, embody this feeling of like one foot in one world and one foot into, into the war world that unfortunately Franz did not survive. The war foot got amputated. And, and the
0: boots and, no longer meant anything.
2: Exactly. The, the boots became an object for other people to to want to so that they could achieve their own sense of comfort for how short their remaining lives would be. Although
0: they were cursed boots.
2: Right. It's Paul that walks those boots out of the hospital in a daze, and that represented kind of a turning point in the whole film, emotionally. I thought this film would be cheesy and hokey given the stalag 17-ness of its dialogue but this film is hard it is so hard of a watch and it really makes the case for the savagery of a war that i think a lot of people either by virtue of not they're not being as many world war I films as there are world war ii like the volume of stories about this war isn't the same, and I think if you're going to start anywhere with World War One, it's got to be this film. I thought it was great, and it was surprisingly great. So I'm going to give this four and a half boots.
0: Four and a half boots or four and a half pairs of boots? On a five-boot scale. Five and boots. Five solitary boots yeah. is your rating scale. Yeah.
1: Uh-huh. Is it the one that went to the foot that was amputated? Yeah. Just for color, oh.
0: you know. Okay. All right. Five now useless boots. <laughs> yeah. That's my rating. What about you, John? How many boots and why? There aren't that many films about World War One because it's so hard to communicate the feeling of it. And a war film where no one moves, where you just get out of your trench and run at the enemy and get mown down. And then your enemy runs at you and you mow them down. um, It's hard to turn that into a narrative arc because really all the characters can do is keep surviving each roll of the dice. It's almost like Russian roulette. Every time you go out of the trench, it's like, well, if I make it back, it's not because of skill. It's not because of um, technique it's not because of any kind of stratagem. It's just I'm running and dodging bullets, and when I get back, like 100% luck. So, what kind of movie can you make out of that? Except a movie where you watch the the humanity of the characters drain out into the mud. And so, who want you know nobody wants to make that movie. World War II movies are full of motion, as Ben said, and full of strategy and exotic things so much so that you can make fake movies about World War II and people buy it. It's like, oh, special airplanes and Indiana Jones and all this stuff where it's like, well, yeah, I mean, World War I is just pure bleakness. Unless you're making a a, a movie about biplane
1: battles. Or and taking your African queen up the river. Mm. Right.
0: Or submarines, right? That was one thing in World War I that was exciting, submarines. So this is kind of our first glimpse on this show of, of that sort of trench warfare. And it obviously affected us all as a, as a document of the time. I think it's kind of unparalleled too. just from the fascination of watching Hollywood, try to adapt to a a new way of making movies and this being an experimental platform. So as a war film, I think it has few peers certainly addressing the kind of war that we're seeing as a film. It is a little bit archaic. Um, but I think as a, I think in that same way, it's a document of the side of this. I mean, half of this show is looking at these as films of their time. And as a film of its time, I, I, I find it, find it fascinating. So I'll go with four and a half boots for all quiet on the rust in front. And I didn't think I was going to say that at the beginning of the movie. I, I definitely started the film going, boy, are we going to really shuck and jive through this? I mean, I, I, all that's missing is like banjo music. Yeah. Uh, but you know, half by halfway through, I, I was in the trenches with those guys and par- partly that I, I just learned to accept their elocution.
2: It's a film I didn't think 1930 was capable of making, and then would not once Hays Code
0: was sure, implemented. Sure, and wouldn't want to. Yeah,
1: The Hays Code is uh, for those who aren't familiar, a thing that Hollywood uh, introduced in order to avoid being officially censored by the government. It's kind of the precursor to the motion picture rating system, but it it, you know, stood as this, like, moral framework for filmmaking for a long time. And for, you know, somebody who grew up in uh, the 80s and 90s, like, the number of films I've seen, like, from during the Hayes Code is vastly higher from the, than the number of films I've seen from before the Hayes Code. And I think the Hayes Code kind of makes us think of, you know, our country as having been, like, incredibly naive when... Uh, We were making all those movies and the insight and incisiveness of this film, like as a criticism of, of war and a, and a, an essay about what war does to somebody who participates in it is shocking to me. You know, I, I agree, Adam, I did not know that 1930 could make this movie. I found it was, it was a, an amazing movie. I uh, I think I'll watch it again. Like I think I think it's I think it's really worth watching and uh, worth seeking out. The fact that this is a kind of conversation that was being had in between those two wars is like came as a genuine surprise to me. And uh, yeah, I think I'll I'll join you guys at the four and a half boot rating with only half a boot knocked off because it's just yeah so old timey that's almost ridiculous.
0: I mean, how would you have done that film differently if that is the only way that people in theater talked at the time? Leaving that aside, what else would you have done?
2: Make it after Streetcar Named Desire, probably.
1: Yeah. Like, I was reading, they had, they originally shot all the scenes with Paul and his mom with a different actress who was like a vaudeville. comedian and like audiences were so primed to just laugh when they saw her that it like totally ruined that part of the movie because they you know they just saw her and like assumed that there was supposed to be something funny about the interactions like it's like a woman sick in bed basically like like almost like a victorian style like i've i've taken to my bed because i'm so worried about my my beautiful son and So they had to like reshoot all those scenes because people were just laughing when they saw this this actress And, and like to like as a, as a way of thinking about like what the audience was prepared for when they walked into the theater and like the, the level of sophistication they were bringing to the table. It is amazing that this movie is as sophisticated as it is given a fact like that.
2: One thing we do every episode is select someone that we've rooted for. It's a segment we call Who's Your Guy? Ben, who's your guy?
1: Well, I don't know if I rooted for this guy or just felt this guy was my proxy on screen, but the guy who gets all of his body but his hands blown off, (laughs) there's just two hands hanging from the barbed wire, that was my guy. Boy, pretty... If I was in World War Two, yeah. if, if I was in World War One, let's be honest, that's who I would be. <laughs> that would be two two hands, two hands clutching barbed wire, guy. Yeah. How about you, Adam?
2: Uh, my guy's Dietering. He's the farmer of the group. He's the guy uh, who ran into the cherry tree outside of the bunker and and goes on and on about how beautiful he is before going AWOL not long after in order to go back to the wife and farm that he left behind. I think in a lot of war films, you see this type of guy among the people who have turned the page in their personality and have accepted their circumstances as, as war fighter in a war. There is, there are just as many almost of this type of guy, which is a guy who is fighting that instinct and holding on to what he has at home uh, at all costs. And Dietering embodied that to me in a way that really set him apart from everyone else and uh for that reason he's my guy what about you john
0: who's your guy we see the lieutenant just a few times he comes in a couple of times to give sort of uh inspiring little pats on the back he saves the day with the cook and says give these men double rations we see him enough that we recognize that the men respect him, in a way that they don't respect others. And the actor has a certain kind of—he's tall. He has—he's—he's he's groomed in a way that no one else in the film kind of achieves. He's a little older, but he's extremely patrician in every respect. You just see him as a. Um, In the same way that fires on the plane, when we encountered the Japanese officers, they had a different presentation where they were clearly officers and those officers looked down on the soldiers um, and were, you know, obviously thought of themselves as aristocrats. Our lieutenant in this movie, he communicated a kind of aristocratic bearing, but was very sympathetic to the men. He was my guy from the moment he arrived on the scene because you want, you you expect him to be distant and unhelpful. I mean, the, the, the trope of the aristocratic officer that is useless is pretty common in movies. We we've seen, um, who comes at the war from a, like from a jaunty perspective. And then it turns out that his hat is on backward. (laughs) Uh, but this was, you know, th- this was an officer that was capable, but also very distinct from the men.
1: Yeah. That scene where the guy ha- uh, has a freak out and, like, tries to run out of the trench and gets hit. And he tells Paul to, like, go back and tell the men he's okay is uh, very, uh, very telling about the character that he has, you know.
0: And to communicate all of that with as little. To, to commun- communicate that as an actor, largely with your bearing, um, again, felt like a silent film holdover. I, uh, when He's another one of these actors where I just couldn't take my eyes off him when he was on the screen. Good guys all around.
2: Yeah. Uh, why don't we figure out what film we're watching next?
1: Well, actually, we know what film we're watching next because we already recorded the uh, the selection of that film so i think what we should do is throw to the audio of that now and that will be our selection world war
0: ii is back on the menu boys <laughs> All right, let's get, let's get our 100-sided die. I realize that in order to properly roll the 100-sided die, I need a die tray.
2: Wow, look I'll, at you. You have a special rolling plate. I do, a rolling plate. Looks like something that you roll and cut a lot
0: of things on. hmm I do. <laughs> All right, here we go.
1: Lucky number 13 number 13 is a world war ii movie from 1988 directed by mike nichols it's biloxi blues
0: oh that's a good movie i'm it's it never leaves mississippi though matthew broderick christopher Christopher Walken. walken i mean it's a it's a boot camp movie no kidding this have, is Peak Broderick. Have you guys never? I've never seen it. Oh my god, you it. guys, this is a this is one of Neil Simon's he did a trilogy of films called the Eugene Trilogy where the main character is named Eugene and it's uh it starts with Brighton Beach Memoirs and then Biloxi Blues and it ends with Broadway Bound. And this is like one of the great trilogies of all American
1: plays. They 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 were all plays. I love Brighton Beach memoir. I've I uh, have not seen the other two,
0: and then became then they were made into films. But like this is a, this is American culture, and it's it like a, a slice of American culture that is uh, tr- like dear to my heart. Wow! And at
2: one hour and forty five minutes, uh, what are we going to do with this extra time? Oh, I know. In you get lives. in, you get out. You don't yeah. even
0: need to take a bath. <laughs> <laughs> that runtime is bath proof. <laughs> If you're new to the show, welcome. I hope if you've listened all the way through this episode, then you're exactly our kind of people. Yeah. And uh, we recommend that you stick with us because we have fun like this um, all the time with different movies. Almost every week. Almost every week. Sometimes it's not fun at all because of Ben.
1: (laughs) Well, uh, I like to really like uh, dial back on how entertaining this could potentially be. (laughs) Uh, we have a great back catalog Uh, there's like 43 other episodes already Mm -hmm. uh, out there so uh, if you're if you enjoyed this and want to hear some of our other stuff uh, by all means go check some of those episodes out and we work pretty hard to make these episodes worth listening to whether or not you've seen the film
0: yeah we have a good Facebook group that I uh, highly recommend you go visit full of smart interesting people yeah and then we have a, a super lame Reddit group full of
1: <laughs>
0: massive twits. <laughs> so choose wisely.
1: <laughs> I deleted my Facebook. So I, I assume that that's 100% to do with why <laughs> yeah, one is good get out of one, there. One is- <laughs> <laughs> uh. Uh, Alright, well, we'll let uh, Rob take it from here. So, uh, in the meantime, I've been Ben Harrison for John Roderick and Adam Pranica. To the victor go the spoiler alerts. No!
0: Fires a maximum fun podcast that's hosted by Ben Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John
2: Roderick. It's produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte, and our theme music is "War" by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. Our logo art is by Nick Ditmer. If you'd like to support the show, please head on over to maximumfun.org/donate or leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And make sure that when you're using social media. To use the hashtag friendly fire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John is at JohnRoderick, and I'm at Rob K Schulte. Thanks, we'll see you next week.
0: Hey, Siri. Hey, Siri. Hey. Hey, Siri. Hey, Siri. We'll cut all this out. Hey, Siri. Hey, Siri. Text Ben Harrison.
1: (laughs) Do you mean one of these?
0: (laughs) Yes, Benjamin Harrison.
1: What do you want to say?
0: You are a twat, period. (laughs) Okay,
1: I'll send this.